And turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, we'll read verse 13 through to the end of the chapter. Let's ask God's blessing on the hearing of his word. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for Jesus Christ, the living word. We would pray for the Holy Spirit that caused these words to be recorded by Matthew for us to come and make them alive in our hearts and minds today. Grant us that, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. stayed indelibly impressed upon my mind. Let me run it by you. It was about a person who went into a bookstore run by Marxists. He went in as he looked around uh, and his gaze perused the shelves. He was struck by all the many volumes dealing with Marxist philosophy, the future society, revolutionary theory and praxis. But there were very few, if any, books on any other topics. So we asked the manager of the store whether he had any books on recreation, leisure, travel, fiction, or the like. The manager turned to him and looked at him in dead earnest and said, fiction, leisure, travel? Ma'am, we don't have time for that. We have a cause. We have a world to win. I'm sure that we'd get much the same reply from all the cults and other such groups if we asked some of their members a similar question. They possess such an ardent passion for their labors. They're so convinced of the certainty of their position. They're so devoted to their cause, so set on attaining their goal, that it's oftentimes difficult to keep them from their task. 
Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, whom we routinely see around the city or who come to our door regularly devote two days a week to door-to-door or street canvassing. These are people that are devoted to a cause, committed to a vision, and are willing to sacrifice anything to attain it. So I ask you this morning, why is it that Christians who have the truth of God, Reformed Christians who believe that the kingdom of God has come, positive future orientation Christians who believe the glory of God will fill the whole earth, why is it that such people do not see the kingdom being extended, God getting increasingly greater glory, and more and more coming to know the truth as it is in Jesus Christ? Could it be that the church is weak, ineffective, fruitless in its kingdom task, because like Peter, in verse 23, it has set its mind on man's interests and not God's, building its own kingdom? I would like to ask you a question that should govern the whole of your existence. The answer you give to it will determine not only your present pilgrimage in this life as long as God allows, but will determine your eternal life as well. Whose kingdom are you building? For you see, the passage before us is a kingdom passage. Look at verse 19. Peter is to be given the keys of the kingdom. Look at verse 28. We see the imminence or the nearness of the kingdom, that it will come before those present will perish. Look at verse 16. Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah, that is the anointed king, the Mashiach, is a recognition of Jesus' kingship. But Peter here, despite his recognition of the king, despite his awareness of Jesus' discussion being about the kingdom, makes a fundamental mistake. For like the other Jews of the day, Peter expected a political kingdom with Israel in supreme prominence. God's chosen people would finally be vindicated. They would finally get the place they deserved, and everyone would see how special they were. Peter expected Jesus to go to Jerusalem, claim his throne, wear the royal attire, and be crowned king. And here he was, privileged to be in on the ground floor, so to speak. He was expecting to be in on the good life. But Peter was taking the shortcut to the kingdom. For Jesus tells him the way to the kingdom is that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and be raised. Jesus' crown would be one of thorns. His robes would be those of ironic mockery. And Jesus' throne in Jerusalem was to be impaled on a stake. Is it any wonder that our Lord's response to Peter's rebuke of verse 22 is, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. To the world, the cross was offensive. To Jesus, anything that stood in the way of the cross was offensive. You see, it was, verse 24, it was then that Jesus spoke these words to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you are not to be a stumbling block to the Lord in the extension of his kingdom, building his kingdom and not your own, it's crucial for you to understand these three exhortations of our Lord and the reasons he gives for them in the subsequent verses. And I would like to examine each of them individually, for each one of them is in order to the next. That is, you must first deny yourself if you were to take up your cross, and you must take up your cross if you were to follow him. Each one is in order to the next. And you need to understand what each one of them means. First of all, Jesus says you must deny 
yourself. This has been commonly misunderstood in the history of the church, so I'd like to dispense with all notions of what it is not meaning. Denying yourself is not denying yourself something. For instance, it's not giving up some pleasure or favorite item, such as eating chocolate or pizza, or denying yourself in the indulgence of other carnal appetites. We see this in the practice in some Christian circles, commonly referred to as Lent. I'm giving up pizza for Lent, or I'm giving up meat on Fridays, or I'm giving up this, all right? I'm denying myself what I really enjoy. That's not what is meant when Jesus says you must deny yourself. Nor does denying yourself mean uh, denying yourself, uh, uh, denying your, your physical body. In the Middle Ages, uh, people engaged in self-flagellation, whipping themselves, sleeping on nails, prolonged fasting, beating the body physically back in the medieval. They would do that uh, to deny the flesh or to deny themselves or so they thought. That's not what Jesus means by deny yourself either. And it's not beating your conscience spiritually either. Oh, how terrible I am. Oh, how wicked I am. Oh, what a poor, wretched sinner I am as many of us are prone to do. That's not what denying yourself means either. For all of them, in one way or another, could be turned around to assert before God your own self-righteousness as a result of the practice. Hey, God, look at how good I am at denying myself. I really did it well this time. No, that's not what Jesus means. What Jesus means is that you, your very self, that must be denied. For it is you Yourself that sets itself up in opposition to God. Your interests and pursuits in life in opposition to God's interests and goals for your life as the purpose for which you were created. Man seeks to be independent of God, living apart from him, living apart from his authority and from the guidance of his word. Man says, yes, I believe in God as long as he doesn't interfere with my life or get in my way. It is yourself that needs to be denied. And Jesus explains this in verse 25. Look at the text. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now what are we to make of this apparent paradox, apparent contradiction? They appear to contradict one another, don't they? You must lose your life to find it. What does Jesus mean? In order to understand this, you need to go back to creation. When the world existed as it was meant to be and as God had created it before the entrance of sin, God created the world and everything in it. God created man in his own image and likeness to be God's representative in ruling the earth, his vicegerent ruling over creation under God. He was to glorify God as creator and enjoy the benefits of that relationship. But man disobeyed God and fell in sin, losing the privileges and falling from his high place. And what was the cause of this? It was his own self-assertion in seeking more for himself than what God had given him, in seeking to be greater than what God had created him to be. It was his love of self and vain glory that caused him to fall. And is it not ironic that in seeking to be more than what he was created to be, he became less than that for which he was created? Indeed, his purpose was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And God said, don't eat from that one tree. But Satan said, go ahead. Check it out for yourself. He's just afraid you'll be like him. 
Go ahead. You be God. Decide for yourself who's right. Me or God. Check it out. Assert yourself. And he ate. And he fell. And God said, you will be a slave. You have lost your privileges. Man, the king, had sought to be God and wound up a cursed slave. He believed the lie rather than the truth. And now no longer do creation and lives appear as they were meant to be. For with the entrance of sin into the world, our fallen nature has bought the lie of Satan rather than the truth of God. And that explains the context in which Jesus makes his statement. It's no longer paradoxical, conflicting, contradictory, apparently. What Jesus is saying that is, is that if you, blinded by sin, thinking yourself master of your life, captain of your fate, if you, seeking to be God, determining the course of your life by seeking your own interests and selfish pleasures, if your life is characterized by this, you're living a lie. You're not fulfilling the purpose for which we were created, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Hence, you will lose your life. But if you, being enlightened by Him who is light, lose your life, give it over to Jesus for His sake, and live as you were created to be, you will be living in accord with the truth, and you shall find your life. For Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. For full life is indeed to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Before we leave this verse, look, look at the text. Notice how Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart and mine. Verse 25. How our interest is really self-preservation. And yet that's exactly the basis for his appeal. He takes what we have distorted by sin, appeals to it, sheds the light of God's truth upon it, and turns death to life. But this paradoxical principle is further detailed in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Here Jesus introduces the element of the human soul into his exhortation, the eternal aspect of man. Again, he appeals to our vain self-interest. He says, you're living for yourself, your selfish ambitions and pursuits, and in so doing you gain the whole world. Is that enough to tip the scales in your favor compared with the inestimable worth of your soul? Let me illustrate this by that paradigm of American success, the self-made man. Into the world he comes, not content to live like the rest, not happy to live a normal routine existence. He determines that he will be different. He'll make a name for himself. He sets before himself the goal of material wealth, to be esteemed above his peers, to be at the top of the ladder, the king of the hill. And he slaves and he sweats and he toils and he labors, striving, straining, struggling, scrambling his way to the top. His whole life consumed with attaining that goal. And then at the end of his days, at the twilight of his life approaches, he turns from the top of his ladder to look back. And what does he see but that which is said in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. 
what he thought was the ladder of success he climbed was a slippery slide into hell. Oh, the deceitfulness of sin. This is what Jesus is getting at. In effect, he pleads with you and with me. Why will you live for temporal pleasures and earthly wealth? It's all going to pass away, but your soul will live eternally. How will you invest with that? Will you spend your life deceived by sin and building your own kingdom? Or will you come to me and be transferred to my eternal kingdom? And such are the two realities of the world in which we live. One viewed through eyes blinded by sin. The other viewed through the spectacles of the truth of God. But what about when we take the searchlight of sacred scripture from the world and turn its beams so that its penetrating light shines in our own midst and in our own hearts? Does not that two-edged sword rend your heart as it reveals that there has been a fundamental failure to heed this command of our Lord? Walk into any Christian bookstore these days, and it's no different than any secular bookstore for want of self-help literature. A God-dishonoring obsession with and focus on self prevails. The mainstay, the majority of Christian counseling I hear, interprets the command of God to love your neighbor as yourself as meaning that you must first love yourself. Does anybody forget what Jesus said? These are the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Not three, love yourself. Isn't that the real problem? Is that you and I love ourselves too much? The Christian's need is to deny himself. The fundamental prerequisite of Christian discipleship that has gone off the radar in the church is first, deny yourself, not love yourself. I ask you to search your hearts to see if this is true. I'll give you a couple of examples. Jealousy. What's going on in your heart when jealousy rears its ugly head? Is it not provoked by the sight of someone else having what you want? Sometimes it's material possessions. Sometimes it's merely the praise and recognition you see someone else getting. You're jealous because you want people to notice you, to praise you, pat you on the back. But you see, the anatomy of jealousy is covetousness, coveting what someone else has. Or gossip. What's going on in gossip? Is it not most times the belittling of another, cutting them down to size? So that what you're really achieving is making them smaller in comparison to yourself, in effect, elevating yourself above them? You put yourself on a pedestal in gossip. That's idolatry. Rightly, does Paul class idolatry and covetousness with homosexuality, fornication, and adultery as being among those which shall not inherit the kingdom of God? They're antithetical, the exact opposite of kingdom life. Why? Because they pursue man's interests, not God's. They serve your kingdom, not God's. Or what of the obsession to seek God's will? Notice, having just preached on thy will be done, I've qualified that with obsession. We must seek the Lord's will. But if that seeking becomes inordinate, out of place, which in the church today it often has, it's obsessive. And why? 
Is it not so that knowing what God's will is, we can then once again assume the helm, take control, and run our own lives? How quickly piety, if not kept in check, can become piosity, trying to be holier than God, as we once again seek to become masters of our faith. How is it that these things happen to Christians? Well, it's because we need to deny ourselves. Remember our analysis of reality? You can either look at life sinfully, believing the lie, or you can look at life from God's perspective, thinking his thoughts after him, and in his light, see light, find true life. Well, because of indwelling sin that remains in Christians in this life, even after being born again, it's the constant temptation to believe the lie rather than the truth. You constantly think that the fulfillment of life is to be found in pleasing yourself. The true pleasure in life is to be found in seeking what you want. That life consists in the accumulation and enjoyment of material comforts, wealth, pleasure. So often I see the members of the body of Christ seeking these things to such a degree that the church is no different than the world. So often Christians are so sought up in keeping, keep, keep seeking the good life. What's the result? You become preoccupied with self-education and preservation at the expense of proclamation of the gospel and the extension of his kingdom. You believe the lie rather than the truth. It is on Christ the solid rock you must stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's he that gives your life substance and meaning, not the other things in your life. Where do you stand? You need to deny yourselves until with Paul you can cry, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Who or what does your life center around? What is the focus? What is the purpose of your life? Christ is the solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. How can this be done? You must go to the cross. To the cross. It's there that sin and truth stand fixed together in the person of Jesus as he denies himself. The purpose of God was that man might glorify God and enjoy him. But Adam exalted himself and fell from his privileged position. He believed the lie and sinned against God. So God raised up Israel as the covenant head of the nations. They were to be cast away for the sake of the world, to deny themselves in service to the nations, that the nations might come and know God. But they too exalted themselves. They too believed the lie and sought the pleasures of the other nations, and so doing forsook the blessings of their God. But God's purposes will not be thwarted. He now sends a second, a last Adam, himself the true Israel, who will live a perfect life of self-sacrifice to obey the will of God the Father. He will win the world by serving the world. He will conquer the world by dying for the world. His selfless life accomplishes what Adam and Israel failed in. And in his death, his self-sacrifice, he pays the penalty for the selfish sins of his people. Look, see him on the cross, hanging perfectly innocent, yet dying as a criminal. 
He must be torn that you may be mended. He must die that you may live. He must be forsaken by God that you may be reconciled to the Father through him. He must be made sin in order that in him you might be the righteousness of God. He must drink to the dregs the cup of the wine of the wrath of God so that you might lift up the cup of salvation. Listen, as the crowd and the thieves around him Listen as they mock and taunt. You say you're the king of the Jews? You say you're the Messiah? Save yourself! It's well within his power and his right. He is innocent. But his cry is not my will but thine be done. He does not save himself. For if he were to come down from the cross, the mouth of hell would open wide its jaws and swallow all present and us with them. He stays on the cross. He denies himself. Behold the dying love of the Savior displaying the undying love of God. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We sing that, but do you mean it? It's the love of Christ that's to control us, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Whose kingdom are you building? As Jesus Christ denied himself and paid the penalty hanging on that cross, now he speaks to his disciples and says, you must take up your cross. And all notions of what this does not mean must similarly be dispelled. Obviously, Jesus doesn't mean you must take up his cross, Christ's cross. For you indeed cannot carry that cross. You cannot drink that cup. Only God alone can bear the wrath of God on sin and come through unscathed, come through and rise again on the third day. It's only he that once for all sacrifice that can pay the penalty for sins. You cannot carry his cross. But neither does Jesus mean that it's burdens in life that are the cross you must carry. You hear people all the time, that's the cross God has given me to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about. To Jesus' original hearers who heard him say, you must take up your cross, they knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. He was referring to the cross that he would soon be impaled upon. What was crucifixion? What was the cross? What, what would Peter and the other disciples understand in their minds? The cross was the most heinous, horrifying, despicable, detestable form of punishment for a crime that could ever be handed out. It was reserved for the lowest of the low, the commonest of the common criminals. The cross was the ultimate in humiliation as you were stripped naked, left to hang, bleeding, gasping for air, 
Hang there until you died, until your last breath humiliated, left shamed and naked before the world with the inscription above stating the crime for which you were condemned. The problem with us, you and me and our generation, is we've domesticated the cross. We've made it into nice little ornaments that are bought in Christian uh, uh, websites. and We make nice little things that people wear to identify themselves with Christ. But the significance of what Jesus meant has been lost. It was a detestable form of punishment. Writers in the New Testament era would skim over the fact that someone was crucified if they were writing about them. So heinous was it to even mention the thought that somebody was to hang on a cross and be condemned. They wouldn't even mention it in their writings. Jesus says, you must take up your cross. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, you must take up your cross daily. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, he said, when Christ bids a man come, he bids him come and die. Jesus is saying, you have to die daily. It's what Paul elaborates on in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says, put off the old man which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, be made new in the attitude of your mind, and put on the new man which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That old man has to die each and every day. Jesus says, you have to take up your cross and do it daily. Now do you see why if you don't deny yourself first, you would never take up your cross and suffer and die daily. Jesus says it's absolutely necessary for you to take up your cross that God's purposes might be accomplished in and through you. As he poured out his life on that altar of the world as a living sacrifice offered up to God, as he stood as a representative for you in his life, death, and resurrection, he now calls for you to represent him before the world as you carry your cross. In Philippians, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know, health, wealth, and prosperity teaching is the number one proclamation of the gospel in the world today. Health, wealth, and prosperity. And yet throughout the entirety of the Bible is a unified thread emphasizing the reality of suffering in the Christian life. Dying to yourself putting that old man to death each and every day. It's been given to you, Paul says, not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer with him. Where is the theology of suffering in the contemporary Christian church? The degree to which you die to yourself and bear your cross as you die to yourself, to that degree correspondingly, people will see Jesus in and working through you. As you seek his interests and not your own, as you stand next to that cross and say, yes, this sapping hulk of humanity that is broken and despised, he is my savior. 
That is Christ, my Savior. Do you know what it was like to speak to Jews about a crucified Messiah? To speak to Greeks who established the Olympic Games and the the priority and prominence of human might? To preach to them a crucified Messiah? Foolishness to the Greeks. Folly to the Jews. Think of the church in our present day behind the Iron Curtain. Or if you, like Jen Basile, keep in touch with the suffering church, people martyred for Christ. I was just, just yesterday, I was, while I was away, I, I worshipped in a church last Sunday in North Carolina, and I was listening to a lecture by Bob Godfrey on the history of the church, a Leonier video lecture. And he mentioned Mary Slessor, a famous missionary. I said, Mary Slessor? I never heard of Mary Slessor. Yeah, anybody heard of Mary Slessor? Anybody? One. Yeah, of course, you would, Belinda, right? Mary Slessor. So I, I said, ah, i got to look this up. Went online immediately, right? Mary Slessor, she was a missionary to Nigeria, Calabar. I went to the library. I said, I've got to get a book on Mary Slessor. I got a book out of the library. Yes, I read it yesterday. This woman was incredible. And yet, she established something like 1,500 churches in Nigeria. She would go where the men wouldn't go because it was, they were all cannibals. So when the men would go, they would, the cannibals would just eat them. But when this little four-foot-six Scots woman went, they were actually afraid of her. She established 1,500 churches. Thousands of people came to Christ. She suffered and died. She died, I think, when she was 35 or 40. No, I'm not suggesting everybody do that. But these are inspiring stories that you and I need to hear. You see, the heroes of our children should not be teenage mutant ninja turtles. They should be Mary Slessor, Livingston, people who took the gospel to the darkest parts of the universe so that people would come to know Jesus Christ. They denied themselves. They took up the cross. And they followed Christ to places where he was not known. Are you and I willing to go out with Christ and bear the reproach? Are we missing God's blessing to be poured out on his suffering servants? Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake, where such were the prophets who went before you. Our happiness resides in dying to self and bearing our cross, suffering for the name of Christ and the extension of his kingdom. Don't believe the lie. Don't stand on sinking ground. Those Christians are happy, blessed Christians. Do you know that experience? I hear a lot of talk today for what people mistakenly understand Jesus to mean in these verses. Whose kingdom are you building? 
Each one of these commands is in order to the next. You cannot deny yourself until you've met Jesus and seen yourself in comparison to the perfect and righteous anointed Messiah. And you cannot take up your cross until you deny yourself. You cannot stand to be persecuted and enjoy reproach and stand to be mocked and scorned and scoffed at for being a Christian because you identify yourself with Christ and worship someone who was killed as a common criminal until you have denied yourself. You'd be more concerned with how you look, what people think of you. You cannot follow Jesus Christ until you have denied yourself. Look at verse 27 as we come to a close this morning. Jesus gives a third reason for his three exhortations. He said, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is coming again. Each and every one in my hearing today will have to stand before Jesus Christ when he comes. What will he say to you? As your pastor who loves you and is entrusted with guiding you to holiness in heaven, I want you to hear from the words of the Savior. Enter into my kingdom and the joy of your reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. Whose kingdom are you building? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these sobering words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you above all for him and his selfless sacrifice for such selfish sinners as ourselves. Forgive us. Restore us. Renew us and use us, we pray, that you and your Son may be glorified in and through each one of us, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen and amen.